You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Identifying emotions is a key decision-making skill. It it is untrue that we don't need emotions in decision-making. And probably the most controversial statement I say is that all decisions are emotional decisions. Growing wealth while supporting your family isn't easy, but with a well-crafted plan, you can take on anything. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Juggling finances can be overwhelming, but you can find a better balance. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. When I was first starting out, in the world of work, I remember thinking that all I needed to do to succeed was to work really hard, to put in the extra hours, to volunteer, or step up to do whatever needed to be done to build up my resume and my portfolio. And now that I've got a few more, well, decades, I guess, of experience under my belt, I can see hard work really is important, but there is another essential part of the equation, and that's communication. How do you talk to your boss or your supervisor about getting a raise or a promotion? What do you say if a colleague isn't pulling their weight on a project? How do you express that you're feeling burnt out? How do you properly motivate a team member once you're a manager? These are what we call quote unquote soft skills, but they can actually be really hard to navigate because most of us, many of us, are not taught to be good coworkers or managers. And when an issue arises, sometimes we just don't know how to talk about it or how to deal with it. And the result is that even if we are working really hard, we can feel unseen and unheard. And we might even quit because of that miscommunication. A recent Pew survey found that 57% of people who quit their jobs during the Great Resignation said that feeling disrespected at work was a reason for that decision. Considering that 80% of the workers who quit now say they regret it, I worry that we're just packing up these communication problems when we leave one job and taking them with us to the next. That's why today we are going to get really tactical about those soft skills so that we can ask for the things that we need, actually solve the problems that come our way. Joining me today is Jen Whitmer. She is a leadership expert, and she specializes in helping workplaces solve conflict and communicate better. She's also a certified Enneagram coach, which we are going to dig into. I'm excited to learn more about Enneagrams. I know they're hot stuff. Jen is joining us from her home in St. Louis. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation. Oh, me too. Me too. I always love it when I know I'm going to learn something interesting. You coach your clients on communication and leadership skills. And I know that a big part of your work has been showing people that conflict in the workplace actually is not always a bad thing. It can be a good thing. And some people might be listening to that and think, well, no, I like to avoid conflict at all costs. When is it good? (laughs) Oh, well, I, you know, if you're out there listening, I always say that I'm a recovering conflict avoider, and I would rather moonwalk my way out of conflict. So I feel you if that is you who are listening and feel that push away from conflict. So conflict, when we look at it, and we kind of flip it up on its head, it can become an opportunity. And it can become an opportunity in a few different ways. One of them is the opportunity to really find out what matters. Because if you're on a team of people, and especially if you're working in a cross-functional team, and say you're in accounting and you're in a meeting with marketing and a meeting with legal, those three sets often struggle together, but they're all fighting for something important that they're representing. But the opportunity is to say, how can all of these interests that we're representing come together to meet the goal of our organization? So what are the values and goals and the mission of what we're doing together? 
and that opportunity of here's what really matters and here is how we come together to solve that problem. So that finding out what really matters is an important opportunity in conflict. It's also a really important opportunity to understand more about yourself. So when you were talking at the beginning about, you know, as everybody likes to call them soft skills, I often call them human skills or power skills because that's really what helps us work together because I mean, unless you're working with robots all day long, you're working with people and you have to know yourself. So there's so much research out there about the power of self-awareness. And one research study has shown that self-awareness is the number one skill that creates better managers that have more engaged teams that run more profitable companies. It's the number one skill. And then conflict shows us who this is how I am interacting with people. And you have the opportunity to gain some self-awareness about what matters to you. There's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Absolutely. So when you talk about becoming self-aware, how are we supposed to be looking at ourselves in a way that we are not now? Oh, that's a great question. So when you talked about the Enneagram, that is my favorite tool for self-awareness. So it's a personality framework that lets us look at our deep motivations that we might not even consider. And that helps us look at ourselves in a way that is often the parts of ourselves we don't really like. And so we like to push it down. We push it aside and we're like, I'm just going to be different. But what happens is when we push it aside, it comes out like sideways and in in a way that we can't really manage or choose responses. It's just a reaction. But when we start to look at ourselves, it's like, oh, what is motivating me? Why am I thinking, feeling, and acting this way? The Enneagram helps us see that. And then we can look at how does that impact the way I'm approaching this conflict? How is this motivation approaching it? How am I doing? Those are different ways we can look at ourselves to grow in self-awareness. So as we begin to explore the Enneagram, you said it's a personality framework. We've heard many of us about these various personality tests, the ones that are supposed to tell us what we should do in our lives, right? (laughs) Myers-Briggs being the big one. You take Myers-Briggs, it tells you what you should aim at maybe in terms of your career. What is the Enneagram for Enneagrams for dummies, right? Like what is it? What (laughs) does it do? Where did it come from? And why do you like it? Yeah. So I am a personality junkie. I mean, give me a Harry Potter quiz, the BuzzFeed quiz on which movie are you? Like, I love those things. But those are sometimes just fun. I have found that the Enneagram as a personality framework actually provides a way toward change. And it tells you why. Why am I doing this? What are these deep core motivations? And so rather than putting you in a box that you stay in, it shows you that why you're doing it. So you have some opportunities to release and let go and adjust that allow you to make different choices. I personally, in my study and work, you can't change your personality because it's a little bit like colored glasses. It's the way that you see the world. But when you understand how you see the world, you can do something different. And so the framework is a group of nine different personality types that show you why you think, act, and feel the way you do. That's the simplest explanation. When you look at those nine, when you look at those nine personality types, I mean, look, we could probably do a whole show going through them. We're not going to do that. What are the ones that you see most often in women? And what are the strengths and weaknesses of those types? Absolutely. Well, they are evenly, not evenly distributed necessarily, but I know women of all types. It's not gendered at all. There are a lot of cultural expectations. So for example, Enneagram 8s, the personality types are labeled just by numbers, which actually makes it real easy. So Enneagram 8s often are considered male qualities of leadership, of decisiveness, of seeing a system and fixing and protecting. But women who exhibit those same qualities sometimes struggle because it's seen as bossy or aggressive. And so it's not that there aren't women aides, it's that our culture sometimes 
says women eights are a problem, which isn't true, but that is what we've been enculturated to believe. So in these nine types, they each have their own particular power and pressure, I like to say. And so if we just spin around the circle real fast, so like this will take a minute and we're going to start with the eights and go around in a circle. So Enneagram eights, like I said, are motivated to protect and solve. And there's great power in protection and solving. Their struggle is often that they don't want to be betrayed. So they'll make some major decisions about vulnerability and weakness because they don't want to be betrayed. And then Enneagram nines, their power is connection, seeing all sides of the story, understanding different people and positions and points of view, which is such a powerful tool, but then they often forget themselves. So their pressure is that they don't want to lose connection. So they retreat and withdraw and numb out because it's too much to connect everybody all the time. And then Enneagram ones, as we move around the circle, they're motivated to really make things good and right and bring order to chaos in really detailed ways, which is so powerful. But then they have this strong internal critic that always tells them it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. And so they can become very critical of themselves and others. Enneagram twos are motivated to help other people, to support them, to make sure they have what they need, but their pressure is, if I don't do that, I'm going to be rejected and I don't have value. So they overextend themselves and they don't have good boundaries at times. Enneagram threes are motivated to succeed and to reach those goals. They're kind of motivational, but their pressure is that they feel like their worth is tied to their work and they struggle with that type of relationship with work. Enneagram fours are deeply emotional. They connect with people emotionally. They see things as unique opportunities to express values, which is such an important skill, but they also feel like they're never enough and too much all at the same time. And that can pose problems for how they approach people and emotions and connection. Enneagram fives are incredibly competent. They are like the PhDs of the Enneagram and they always know and they deeply understand things, but because they're so afraid of of not knowing something, of being ignorant in an area and not being competent, that can push them into deep dives of where the return on investment of study can keep them trapped in indecision. Enneagram sixes are connectors. They're loyal. They are motivated to be prepared and ask really great questions. Nobody asks questions like sixes, but they're really afraid of being blamed and abandoned. So they prepare and prepare and prepare and stay longer in places where they probably shouldn't. And then Enneagram sevens are motivated to see this great vision of the future, to enjoy life. They're visionaries, but they're so motivated to avoid pain that it keeps them kind of hustling to do the next exciting thing, to get to the next exciting action. So, and you can see yourself in all of these, like nobody wants right. to be Right. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> You know, yeah. yeah. So, do you need to do you need to take the test to then really know which you are, or can we just learn about it by hearing you talk about it? And when you take the test, does it cost money? That's a great question. So I, as an Enneagram specialist, do not recommend a test. There are tests out there, but the tool is ancient. Nobody really knows. If somebody tells you they know exactly where the Enneagram began, they don't. Nobody really knows. The modern Enneagram started in the late 1800s with a man called Gurdjieff and has progressed over the last century of how we use the tool, and it's been studied psychologically. So they've developed some testing but really what you're trying to figure out is which one of those motivations is the core. So if you imagine a bus and all of those motivations are on a bus, avoiding pain, wanting to be worthy, having significance, not wanting to be blamed, well, one of them is driving. One of them is driving your bus. Everybody's there influencing you, but one is driving. And that's what you have to figure out. So a conversation like this, you can start to see, well, I never need to know all the information. I'm like the decider. Well, you've probably ruled out Enneagram 5. And so you can start to identify which one of these hits you. And reading descriptions is a great way to understand that. So I have a tool on my website. If you go to jenwitmer.com slash Enneagram, it downloads much more detail than what we talked about today. And you can start reading and saying, ooh, I'm going to try this on. Is this how I'm seeing the world? Am I being motivated right now? to make sure people don't reject me? What's motivating me in this circumstance? Once you know 
sort of how you're wired in this way. I mean, let's say you are somebody who feels like they need to know all the information before they can make a decision. That is a description, I think, that applies to a lot of women when it comes particularly to investing, because investing is not something where there are answers that are 100% correct. And so it can be very difficult to get out of your own way and just start, even though we know that starting is what you have to do. Let's say you have this information about yourself. It's causing conflict within your life. It's causing conflict for you at work. You can't hand your project in because you're not sure that it's perfect. How do you use these sorts of insights about yourself to help you get where you want to go? Yeah. I love that idea of getting where you want to go. You have to know where you're starting. And so if we understand what that motivation is, if we use that example of I have to have all the information and I have to know it deeply, the story that you're telling yourself is I have to know everything. But the true story is that you can never know everything. And once you start to accept that truer story, that then helps you release the inaction And then especially as an Enneagram 5, if we're going to stick with that example, there are tools that you can use to say, okay, I'm going to get to this point. One of the things I always help leaders who are Enneagram 5s is to put a clear timeline on how you're going to make a decision. Tell your people you might need to go away for a little while, but give yourself a very clear timeline. I'm going to take this information and I'm going to study it for four days and I will come back with either I need more information or a decision. And you can do that two times. If you want more information, you can only come back twice because then you have to make a decision. And in the moment, I often encourage leaders to say, five, four, three, two, one, go. Five, four, three, two, one, send the email. Five, four, three, two, one, ask the questions. And because there is this understanding of I'm never going to feel ready, so I just have to start. There are other people that don't identify with that with all. They're like, I totally make the decision. I've got enough information. And they get really frustrated with other people who don't see the world the way they do. So for everybody starting to understand, oh, this person is really motivated to know and feel competent. I am really motivated to do it the right way. So how can we come together? How can we understand each other better and ask better questions in our conflict or in our way of doing? I think that's a very common example. I mean, I only have 12 people on my team, but I can already see I'm the ready, fire, aim person. And (laughs) there are other people who are, no, I'm going to step it all out using the Monday board and we're going to have all the little I's and T's that we have to deal with and the check marks on the chart. And it gets to be a little conflicty. How do you handle people who are different from you and handle being the wrong word, but the one that my Enneagram would probably pick? (laughs) So one of the things that works no matter what your personality is, and if you don't know anything about the Enneagram, so if you're like, I still don't understand this, Jen, you've been talking for 15 minutes, I don't get it. Yeah, let's totally put the Enneagram to the side. How do you (laughs) handle people who are different? That's right. And so I love to ask questions in three different areas, especially when you're feeling friction. You're kind of like, I don't quite know, or I'm real frustrated and activated about the way this person is behaving. It's just different than you. If you start to ask questions of yourself and others in three areas, you get a lot of wisdom and you can start to move forward to problem solving. So one is, how do you feel about this? Identifying emotions is a key decision-making skill. It it is untrue that we don't need emotions in decision-making. And probably the most controversial statement I say is that all decisions are emotional decisions. So you have to identify what the emotions are. So how do you feel about this? Are you frustrated? Are you angry? Do you feel disrespected? Do you feel unseen? Are you annoyed? Are you excited? What's your emotion? And then the second one is, How do you think about this? Why do you think like that? How are you thinking? What are the reasons you think that? I would suggest in these kind of conversations not to use why, but use what. So like, what are your reasons? 
what data do you have? What information do you still need? What information am I missing? Those are all great questions to get to what's there. Because especially if you're the one that's moving forward, you're like, we're just going. They're like, but wait, there's all of this (laughs) that you didn't know. And sometimes you're like, great, I'm still making the same decision. But other times you're like, oh, that was an important piece of information. So what information am I missing? What information do you have that you haven't shared? All of that is in the thinking category. And then the last one is, what do you want to do about this? What are your couple solutions that you want to bring and what are their solutions they want to bring? And then you have a lot more opportunity to see it as a problem-solving opportunity rather than a fight between personality and people. We're like, oh, here's the problem we're trying to solve. Because conflict at its root is the struggle between limited resources and differing goals. And so if I understand what are these differing goals and pieces of information, we can then start to problem solve the limited resources. We just need to put that on a t-shirt, Jen, because that is, <laughs> no, that is the root problem with mm-hmm. money, right? Absolutely. We all have limited resources and we all have a lot of differing goals. And so it's the internal conflict deciding how you're going to use your limited resources to service those conflicting goals. Just brilliant. I want to get your advice on how our listeners can actually work through some very specific workplace scenarios that are tricky to navigate. But before we do that, let me just remind everyone that whether you are raising kids or caring for aging parents or planning for retirement or trying to do all of them at the same time, it is a lot to manage, especially when you're also trying to grow your wealth. Visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor. You will learn strategic ways to help meet your financial obligations, all while remaining focused on your own needs and dreams. With a well-crafted plan, you'll be ready for all of life's competing priorities. So schedule your appointment today. It's planefe.com slash hermoney. I'm talking with Jen Whitmer. She is a leadership expert specializing in communication and conflict resolution in the workplace. And just a reminder, if you want to learn more about Enneagrams at jenwhitmer.com, and she spells it J-E-N-N-W-H-I-T-M-E-R.com slash Enneagram, you will find her tools. All right, let's dig into how our listeners can work through some very specific workplace scenarios that are, you know, a little tough, right? Let's start with being talked over at work or feeling unacknowledged at work, which I think are flavors of the same. They are absolutely flavors of the same. So there's a couple different ways you could approach it, and it depends on what kind of safety you have in your in your team and in your organization. So I'll start with the safest one. It feels scary because it all feels scary, but I want to encourage you, especially as women who are listening, to be women of valor. We can do this. So I would go to the person who, if there's a patterned behavior of somebody talking over you, I would go to them. And I love the word notice. The word notice is really helpful in these kind of tricky, hard conversations. I have noticed in our meetings that I will start to talk and then you will jump in and it feels like you're talking over me and interrupting. Do you notice that you're doing that? 80, 90% of the time, they do. They actually do notice that they are doing that. And if they don't, they're like, oh, I didn't know. And, And so you can have the conversation from there and say, would you consider waiting until I'm finished speaking before adding your comments. I know you always have great things to add as well. I would just like the opportunity to add my part of the conversation. And doing that one-on-one saves a little face, helps you kind of be brave with one person. I highly suggest doing that either in real time on video, in a phone call or face-to-face, not doing that over written communication. If it continues to happen, let's just say it escalates as it often does, and it still happens, and especially if you've talked to this person before, in the meeting, again, it's going to be brave. You can absolutely do this and say, I would really like to finish what I was saying before we hear your comments and start saying that and setting that boundary because you're clearly asking in what's called a coupling statement, here's what you're doing. You're talking over me. Here's what you need to do listen till the end. And coupling statements help people connect what you're asking for in a boundary. 
I wasn't finished. You're talking over me right now. I would like to finish, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts. And that's a kind way to say that. That's not unkind, but it is clear and it is boundaried. And I mean, you may be shaken in your boots and your stomach may be twisted about it, but take a deep breath and they will listen to you. I promise. And you only are going to have to do this once. In a meeting, pretty much once. (laughs) Pretty much once and you will have solved the problem. How about working on a team where other people are not pulling their weight? That is super challenging because sometimes that is your perception and sometimes it is your perception mixed with reality. And so there's a little bit of self-reflection I think that's important to do first. And especially, you know, as we're talking through this Enneagram lens, if you are one of those Enneagram types that's really a go-getter that expects everybody to go above and beyond, you might be the worker that's at 150% and everybody else is really just at 100. But in your perception, they might be more. So start to do some of that examination. Like you may be fine with answering your emails at all hours of the night or, you know, on vacation, but somebody else might not. And so just check your own personal expectations against the expectations of your team and what is the true workplace expectation. So that's just a little self-check first. But then you get to the place where you're like, it's starting to impact my work. And so a great way to approach that conversation is, again, having that conversation individually first and saying, hey, I know that you've got a lot on your plate and your responsibility to finish the graphics for the social post, I'm just going to make up a story here, is it sometimes gets pushed to the side because of whatever reason, but it's starting to impact the ability for me to make the deadline to post things or to turn in the strategy or whatever, however it impacts your work product, help connect that saying, this isn't happening and it's starting to connect our work product. And then you can ask, is there something I can do to help you? Or could we go together and ask for more support? What's the best way for us to move forward? You're bringing it to their attention. You are asking for what you need and you're showing the impact of the work for the team. If that doesn't work and you try a couple times, I would suggest more than once, maybe not more than three times. So somewhere in that one, two range. After you've done that, you can say, you know what? I know we've talked about this a few times. I think we really need to go get some help. Can we go talk to Jean, who is your manager, and say, hey, we're struggling with this timeline and this between us. What could we do? What are you seeing that we could work on together? Because you're not like tattling, like, hey, this person never gets their stuff in on time and it's totally annoying. And while that all may be true, that doesn't help you solve the problem. And so focusing on here's the problem, the work product is being affected, that is a way to help you move forward, kind of starting with it first and then moving it up. All right. And this may be a similar situation or a similar answer, but what about managing people that you need to motivate, but you also, they need a little improvement in their performance? Yeah. I love starting conversations like that. And when I was a school leader, by asking good feedback questions first, like sitting down and saying, hey, I would just love to check in with you and see where you think your performance is. How are you feeling about it? Just get their feedback first. And in my experience, 95% of the time they know. They know. And so then you can start to work from a very different place because you're not feeling like, oh, I have to get them to see it. They already see it. And then you can say, well, what do you think the problem is? What is the struggle that you're facing? What is the thing that is blocking you from getting this done? See what they say. Ask them how they feel about it. You know, all those same questions, feel, think, and do. Starting to get them to articulate that because now they've got the ownership of the problem solving. And that is a great way to put agency back in their lap. And then what you can do as the leader is say, okay, I love this solution. I think this is great. Or I like that. Could we add this? You know, you can negotiate what that is. And then say, how can I help you stay committed to this? And see what their suggestion is. They might say, can you check in on me on Fridays? Can we have a one-on-one once a month to have a status update? See what they say. And if it's agreeable, do that thing see what they say. If they aren't suggesting that, then you suggest something like, could I check in with you and just see how we're doing on this? 
all of these things, I think, have been exacerbated by remote work. I think remote work just makes communication harder. It makes conflict. I think it creates more conflict because it creates more misunderstanding. And I'm wondering if you've come up with solutions for handling this new way that we're working. Yeah. Well, I've worked with a lot of companies where this is a struggle, especially ones that were all in person before, and then they went all remote or hybrid. Like now they're learning a new way of working. And there's a few principles that I've found really, really helpful. One is know what needs to take place in real time, like on a video call, something that is in real time or something that can be distributed over and in a disrupted communication pattern. Things that require brainstorming, things that require problem solving, things that are kickoffs, things that are postmortems, whatever you call them, like when you review a project, those things do really well in real time. So does that type of feedback conversation we just described Any kind of frictional conflict that feels relational or process-oriented in real time. And so that means we all as humans want to, oh, not all, but a lot of us really want to avoid the conflict. So it feels a lot easier to send the Slack message or I'm just going to send the email. And I would encourage you to think about, does this need to happen in real time? And then pick up the phone or get face-to-face as best you can. So video is as face-to-face as you can get get face-to-face. And one of my general rules of thumb, if three written messages didn't solve the problem, get face-to-face. So if three Slack messages didn't solve the problem, three emails don't solve the problem, get face-to-face or at least on the phone, get in real time. And if you just expand that principle throughout work, it will really help eliminate some of the miscommunication and more quickly solve the problems that arise from miscommunication. Such smart advice. I know my listeners really, really well. And one of the things that I know is that they are going to have very specific questions for you. Can (laughs) I twist your arm to get you to come back and maybe field some of those? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I would love that. Specific questions are great because there's the story and everybody then connects with those specific questions and stories. Absolutely. So you've heard it right here, guys. If you have questions for Jen, if you're dealing with conflict at work, conflict in life, and you want to run it past her, we will do that. Just drop us an email at mailbag at hermoney.com and we will set it up. Thanks so much for this conversation, Jen. I so appreciate it. I know we can find you at jenwhitmer.com. Anywhere else you'd like us to look? Yeah, absolutely. I am on LinkedIn and Instagram. I always call it business up front on LinkedIn and party in the back on Instagram. And so I would love to hear your feedback from this, you know, a post or a DM, what you learned. I'd love for you to consider what was the big nugget or takeaway from this. I said a lot of stuff. And so what's, you know, what did you learn? I always love hearing that. And so Jen underscore Whitmer on Instagram, Jen Whitmer over on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Before we dive into our mailbag, just a reminder, Her Money is proudly supported by BCU, a credit union providing a wide array of financial products and services for its members. If you are currently exploring the auto market, BCU offers financing and refinancing options, as well as an exclusive auto buying service to save you both time and money. And you can learn more at BCU. Chelsea Zhu is joining me today for our mailbag. Hey, Chelsea, nice to see you. Hey, Jean. I'm so curious to go and look more into the Enneagram numbers because I really want to know what my type is. I want to know what my type is as well, but I really do feel like I'm different things at different points in time, right? And so I'm going to have to read a lot, I think, to discern kind of where I fit. I thought, though, that the the tips on conflict resolution and how to basically manage your way through those tough situations were really incredible. I think that, I think she helped a lot of people. She definitely helped me. Yeah, I think it's really easy in a lot of those situations. Like she said, they're so emotional, even though we don't think about bringing our emotions into work. It's really easy to, you know, get really upset or irritated and kind of jump to doing 
something irrational or, you know, it's good that she said, you know, you should pause, you should try to work through things at least a couple times before you take action. I thought that that was really good advice. It's really good advice when it comes to shopping as well, right? <laughs> just just pause, take a little bit of time, decide if you really need it, decide if you really even want it before you buy it. While we're talking about personality tests, it's a good time to remind everybody we have our own personality test that was developed by a researcher, by a PhD out in California. It's called Money Type, and it helps people understand how they think about money, how they can take steps to improve their finances by knowing their specific strengths and weaknesses. You can find our personality quiz. It's free at moneytype.hermoney.com. And just a word of warning to people, this is not a three-question Cosmo quiz. This is actually a real instrument that was developed in a research factory to help you figure out why you are the way you are with money. And since you listen to a, a money podcast on a regular basis, it's something that you probably should know about yourself. Just don't expect to finish it in five minutes. Give yourself, I think it took me 10, 12 minutes to finish it. And then once you're done, we actually send you information about what your type means and how you can use your type to help you make better decisions. I'm a producer, by the way, not the producer of this podcast. That's Chelsea today, but I'm an actual producer. That's one of our five money types. And take it and let me know what you think. I know we've got some questions, so let's dive in today, Chelsea. Yeah. So our questions today come to us from members of our private Her Money Facebook group. So first up, we have a question about cars and credit. This person writes, how much does paying off a car loan hurt your credit? And how many loans should one have to keep building their credit? My sister has terrible credit in the 500s. She almost lost her house this past fall, but we saved it, and she is on a better path now. Other than her mortgage, she has paid all of her bills on time for over a year now, but looking back to 2019, they were all consistently late. For credit, she has her car and her daughter's car, the mortgage, and a credit card. She got it in November, and it has a $300 limit. Her car will be paid off this summer. I think she should pay off her daughter's car now. It's a 2015, and no one has driven it in two years. She could probably get about $6,000 for it, and that chunk of money would be helpful to her. She thinks it will further ruin her credit to have her two car loans both paid off this summer, leaving her with only the one credit card and the mortgage. Who's right? You are right, letter writer. It should not hurt her tremendously to pay off these car loans. And I'm with you when you're looking at the value of that $6,000 in helping her rebuild her financial life. When we look at credit, people think that your credit score is kind of a, a formula, like a numeric equation that you put all the numbers in and it just kicks out an answer. It's more like a continuum, and you need a habit of good behavior over time in order to build your credit score back up. The con of credit scores is that they go down a lot faster than they go up. So if you've got a little bit of bad behavior, it can tank your score, and then it can take quite a while in months to build your score back up. But when you're looking at the factors that go into it, there are some that are more important than others. So of primary importance, number one, you got to pay all your bills on time every time. The fact that she was consistently late as recently as 2019 is probably still hurting her. Second factor is credit utilization. That's the percentage of your credit that you're actually using. She doesn't have, it looks like, a lot of credit lines. The one credit card with the very low limit is probably neither really here nor there as far as utilization, but she should try not to spend more than $100 on it at any one time. Just put a small bill on it that she knows that she's going to have every single month and pay that off automatically, and the rest of the time just use a debit card. The other factors are 
closing credit accounts because that shrinks your utilization, but it doesn't look like she has a ton of revolving accounts to close. Once these car loans roll off, they'll show that she has the ability to pay off car loans, and that's not a bad thing. There's also the amount of time that you've had credit with particular lenders, the length of your relationships. My guess is that's hurting her here because this one credit card, the $300 credit card is a new one, but as she has that credit card for longer, that length of relationship will help her. And then the overall mix of credit. And she is showing by virtue of having different types of credit that she has the ability to handle different types of credit. It's just going to take time. And I would not try to micromanage this. I would just try to do the right thing over and over and over again. Check in on her score every three to six months. You should see it moving in the right direction. And yeah, sell that car and use the $6,000 for something that she really needs. That's great advice. Thanks, Jean. Sure. Our next question is about financial priorities. This person writes, I feel so overwhelmed with my finances as a single parent, so please be kind. I have some credit card debt, personal debt, student loans, and I really want to buy a home eventually for me and my daughter. We have lived in an apartment her entire life, and we need a little more space and some outdoor space. My question is, do I stop contributing to my 401k and get my debt paid off? I have a really hard time chipping away at it. Something always seems to come up. I definitely want to get my spending in order. I'm thinking of rerouting what I'm putting toward my 401k to my credit card bills until they're paid down. What do you think? So first of all, I hope that I'm always kind. I try to be kind. And look, there's a lot on your plate. There is a lot on your plate. And I I love that you say that eventually you want to buy a home for yourself and your daughter because this is a process. This is not a one-and-done overnight solution. Two things here. I'm not opposed to the idea of taking some of that 401k contribution and rerouting it toward your credit card bills. I wouldn't take everything. I would look at any matching dollars that you are able to capture. And I would try to get as much of the matching dollars, because they're free money, as you possibly can. More than that, I would definitely route toward your credit card debt. And then I would pay particular attention to a new federal law. It's a second version of the SECURE Act. This is called SECURE 2.0. It's a new retirement law, essentially. And it's a game changer for people with student loans. Starting in 2024, when you make student loan payments, your employer is actually going to have the option to match your student loan payments in retirement contributions. So instead of having to put the money into your 401k to get those matching dollars, you can put the money against your student loans and get those matching dollars. Talk to your HR department if you have one or your boss if you don't about if this is going to be a provision that is available to you. And last item on the list, you mentioned that things happen and you have to sort of look at your whole financial picture over and over again, that things happen that set you back. Sometimes things happen that set us back because we don't have enough money in emergency funds. And so an emergency comes along and we end up putting that emergency on a credit card and then we have to pay the credit card down and that gets expensive because interest rates are going up and it's a cycle that perpetuates. If this sounds like you, I would make sure that you've got an emergency savings account and that you're routing at least a chunk of every paycheck into it so that the next time the emergency hits, you've got money to cover it. Use the emergency funds and then build that emergency cushion back up again. And if you need help with this, if you're thinking this is the kind of thing that you might need help with, check out our finance fix program. It's built for people like you to help get a handle on where your money is going so then you can use it to satisfy your most pressing goals. We all have competing goals. 
It's just a matter of putting him in the right order priority-wise for both our lives and also for the numbers that make the most sense. So I hope that that's helpful. Absolutely. And please don't be so hard on yourself. It's totally fine to be overwhelmed. And I can see, you know, even the fact that you're asking us this question means that you're trying really hard. So you should be proud of yourself. Totally agree, Chelsea. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jean. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In today's Thrive, we're going to be doing something a little different. We love for our Her Money audience to hear from different people in the financial world, and I'm thrilled today to introduce you to Denise Piazza. Denise is a managing partner of One Street Capital, a private equity real estate firm and a certified public accountant. She is also the founder of the One Street Capital Investor Network, which is a community of women working together to learn about real estate investment and tax planning strategies for long-term passive wealth generation. Today, she is going to be talking to us about taxes, not 2022 taxes, since fortunately we just put those to bed, but she's going to talk to us about what we can do to set ourselves up for success this year and in all the years to come, because a good tax strategy involves the steps that you take well before, sometimes years before April 15th. Denise, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Jean. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. I know that you've spent some time studying the best tax strategies out there, and no surprise, the wealthiest among us always seem to know exactly what to do to save the most money. Tell us what some of their best strategies are and how we can use them. Sure. So the first one that I always tell folks to focus on is hire a tax strategist. So for the wealthy, tax planning is not something done at the end of the year or during tax season. It's something, just as you said, they consider throughout the year. They hire a CPA who will work with them on implementing tax strategies to reduce your overall tax burden. And that's really critical, we see, to being able to grow our wealth because all of our areas of income are treated differently by the IRS. Another thing that the wealthy tend to do is they diversify their investments to include tax-advantaged assets. Some of the wealthiest Americans pay some of the lowest amount of taxes on their earnings proportionately. And the best way to understand how it's possible is by looking at their tax returns and what types of assets they invest in. And one of the many strategies that they use to reduce that liability is to invest in assets that benefit from the most powerful tool that the IRS gives us, and that's depreciation. And the best way for someone to think about depreciation is really just the value of your car decreasing the moment you drive it off the lot. Real estate is one type of investment that can benefit from that power of depreciation. So the value of your real estate increases over time, but the tax basis is decreasing. I know that taking advantage of deductible expenses is another one of your tips. Can you walk us through that? Absolutely. So the tax code gives us many opportunities for business owners to reduce tax burden. Some of the most overlooked strategies that we tend to see are vehicle usage, not taking advantage of vehicle usage for your business, making sure that you take the benefit of a vacation or travel costs, as long as you're spending more than half of your time while on that trip on business, employing your children in your business to shift income. They will still be taxed on that income, but at a much lower rate than what you would historically be taxed at. Taking advantage of things like a home office deduction, giving a portion of your business to your children or your family, and health insurance for the self-employed. Also on your list, you say it's really important to understand the difference between good debt and bad debt. That's on my list too, by the way. 
I agree. I agree. So bad debt is, is something that we think about that harms our credit score. It can deplete your earnings. Credit card debt is one of the most common examples of those bad debt. Good debt, on the other hand, is one that can help you build long-term wealth. It's one of the most powerful strategies used by the wealthy because good debt allows them to supercharge investments and grow tax-free wealth. When you sell off investments like stock, you end up paying capital gains on the sale of those investments. So instead of selling investments, the wealthy will leverage their assets as collateral and borrow against them because we don't pay tax on our borrowings. So it can really help you, if you do so strategically, to increase your ability to invest and grow that wealth. And finally, you've got one that is so close to my heart. You're telling people to max out their retirement savings accounts. Why? Correct. So one of the most frequently used tax minimization strategies is to available to people of all income levels, and that's contribute the max amount to your retirement account. You know, that's it's free money, especially when we have the employer match. There's so many avenues to explore. Even if you don't have a 401k plan through your employer, you can invest in an IRA plan. And all of these items basically just allow you to grow your wealth tax-free. We love that. And all of your tips, Denise, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for the great info. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Jen Whitmer for showing us how we can learn more about ourselves, build up our soft skills, and use them to succeed in our careers. And to Denise Piazza for sharing her tax expertise. You can find out more about the One Street Capital Investor Network and join for free today by visiting onestreetcapital.com slash join now. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.